Uh, those of you who were here last week, you remember that Jesus was up north uh, in Galilee. Uh, and in fact, that's where he's been for the last three weeks, at least as uh, in, the, in, the, uh, uh, in the passages we've looked at. Uh, as we've uh, looked at Jesus feeding the 5,000, as we've seen him walk on water, uh, as we've heard him uh, teaching about being the bread of life, uh, and as we saw him last week losing many of his followers. And we left him last week in Capernaum, a small town up there, uh, not so far from Nazareth. Chapter one, uh, verse one of chapter seven actually tells us why uh, he stayed up there. It says, after this, Jesus went about in Galilee. He would not go about in Judea because the Jews were seeking to kill him. Now, Judea is down south. Uh, that's where Jerusalem was. And in Jerusalem, Jesus was a wanted man. And we saw why back in chapter 5. Chapter 5 was the last time he was in Jerusalem, where he healed a man who had been lame for 38 years. And you thought that it was a good thing, but the Jews are really unhappy about it because it was done on the Sabbath. And when they confronted him about it, instead of defending himself with, you know, saying you've misinterpreted the Sabbath laws, he claimed that he was above the Sabbath. He claimed equality with God. And so in chapter 5, verse 18, it says, this is why, chapter 5, verse 18, it says, this is why the Jews were seeking all the more to kill him, because not only was he breaking the Sabbath, but he was even calling God his own father, making himself equal with God. So Jerusalem was a dangerous place for Jesus. But now there's a reason for him to head back to Jerusalem. Chapter 7, verse 2 says the Jews' Feast of Booths was at hand. Uh, the Festival of Booths was one of the festivals that God commanded in the Old Testament. happened every year, about September or October, about the same time as we have the Klein Valley Bible Conference each year. And during the festival, uh, people used to live in booths or tents for seven days. People in rural areas put them on their land, and, and people in the cities would put them on their roof. And the point of living in booths was to remember that their ancestors lived that way when God brought them out of Egypt. It was also a harvest festival. Ah, and so people rejoiced in the harvesting of grapes and olives and, and the blessing of God and his people. And during this festival, many people would go down to Jerusalem. It was the place to go in festival time. Crowds and crowds of people flooded the city. There had been a great kind of festive atmosphere and a great chance to reach the crowds. And so the brothers of Jesus came to him with a suggestion. Verse 3. His brother said to him, Leave here and go to Judea, that your disciples may see the works you are doing. For no one works in secret if he seeks to be known openly. If you do these things, show yourself to the world. See, look, big brother. Huh? We hear you do pretty impressive miracles. Now, I've got some advice for you. Trust us, you know, we're your brothers. But your best interest at heart. No one ever made it big by working in a small town. Right? You've got to go to a big city and show your tricks there. And that's true, isn't it? Right? If you're the most powerful person in KL, you'll be on CNN and uh, BBC, sometimes at least. If you're the most powerful person in Ipoh, no one will know you. Jesus wanted, uh, Jesus' brothers wanted publicity for him. They wanted him to make it big. And the reason given in verse 5 is an interesting one. It says, for not even his brothers believed in him. You see, 
they were thinking about him in a very human point of view, and it shows that they didn't really believe in him. They might have believed that he could do miracles, but they didn't believe in him. They didn't know him as, as God made man, the, the eternal son, the word made flesh. They just knew him as a big brother and could see no further than that. And so the first reaction, they were looking at, under this heading, we're looking at different reactions to Jesus. The first reaction of Jesus is to, is to see him, even to recognize his, his, his miracles from, from an earthly point of view only. But if we see Jesus only from an earthly point of view, then, then we don't believe. We can believe that he existed. We can believe he was a good man. We can even believe he did miracles. Know him as a historical figure. But that's not the kind of belief that God wants us to have. We don't believe in him as the Son of God. As the Word made flesh. As our King, our Lord, our Savior, who rescues us, then then actually we don't believe. And we're like Jesus' brothers. Friendly maybe, concerned maybe, but unbelievers. And friends, even as Christians, if we look at ministry simply from a human point of view, it's often because we're acting like unbelievers, isn't it? If, like Jesus' brothers, we think it's just about achieving big numbers or big influence by you know, marketing or sociology or organizational structure or opportunistic promotion, then, then we're missing the point. Now, some of those things might be useful adjuncts, but, but we are servants of the living God. We are not just pragmatists. We're not just trying to have the greatest impact or become the most famous or, or draw publicity to our church or organization for the sake of it, but not trying to be the most biggest or the most popular, we're trying to faithfully proclaim God's word, the gospel in God's way. And when the brothers of Jesus were, were purely being pragmatic, just want a big show, without taking into, um, into account God's, God's plans and purposes in Christ, it was a sign of their unbelief. And Jesus says to his brothers, in chapter 7, verse 6, my time has not yet come, but your time is always here. The word cannot hate you, but it hates me, because I testify about it that its works are evil. You go up to the feast. I'm not going up to the feast, for my time has not yet fully come. In a number of other places, Jesus talks about his hour has not yet come. Uh, uh, and that's usually referring to his death and resurrection and glorification, but the word here is different. It's not our, it's time. And so Jesus is probably just saying that it's not, it's not the right time for him to go to the feast. The people are waiting for him to turn up in order to kill him. In the first few days of the feast, they'll be there, watching, waiting for his arrival. Now the brothers, they don't have to worry about that kind of thing, because they're not hated like Jesus. They can go anytime, anytime's right for them. But for Jesus, no, no. So he stays in Galilee. But by the time of verse 10, though, the time is right. And so Jesus goes up, even though he does so, quietly. He went up, not publicly, in verse 10, but in private. And it was right that actually they had been waiting for him. Because now the Jews in Jerusalem are asking, verse 11, they're looking for him at the feast, saying, where is he? Huh? They have this thing. What's going on? They're, they're, they're expecting him to show. 
Some of them were there looking for him because they were against him, wanted to kill him. Others, well, because they wanted to listen to him, because he drew different reactions from different people. And people were divided about him down in Jerusalem. And we see two more reactions in verse 12. Some said, he is a good man. Others said, no, he is leading people astray. And even now we see those reactions, don't we? Some people praise Jesus as a good man. What they mean by that, we don't know. need to explore further. Others condemn him as a deceiver. And there in Jerusalem, there were some who liked him and supported him. And, but they didn't do it publicly, because they're scared of getting into trouble. Verse 13. Yet for fear of the Jews, no one spoke openly about him. Well, Jesus had smuggled himself into Jerusalem, like Raja Petra, you know, slipped out of Malaysia. But then about halfway through the week, he comes out of hiding. And when he comes out of hiding, he does it really publicly. Uh, verse 14, he says, At about the middle of the feast, Jesus went up into the temple and began teaching. Now, that's about as public as you can get, isn't it, in Jerusalem? Right? So it's not that Jesus avoided being seen altogether. Maybe he wants to time it so that he's still around for the last day of the feast. Uh, and we'll see why in a few minutes. Hence his comments about the timing earlier. Anyway, Jesus there is teaching in the temple courts, and his teaching is actually so impressive that it becomes a topic of conversation among the Jews themselves. Verse 15, the Jews therefore marveled, saying, How is it this man has learning when he has never studied? Well, there's another reaction to Jesus. Some people are impressed by his teaching. And Jesus answers them by showing the source of his teaching. Verse 16, My teaching is not mine, but his who sent me. That's Fits with what he says in chapter 5, isn't it? Everything he does is from the Father. When he speaks, he speaks what the Father wants him to speak. When he works, he does what the Father wants him to work. And so his teaching is not his own, it's from the Father. And Jesus says in verse 17, If anyone's will is to do God's will, he will know whether the teaching is from God or whether I am speaking on my own authority. If your will is to do God's will, you will know whether Jesus' teaching is from God or he's just speaking by himself. And that also fits with what Jesus said in chapter 5. You can be sure that Jesus is from God if you really want to know God's will. You have access to his witnesses. John the Baptist bore witness to Jesus. The Father, through the Old Testament Scriptures, bore witness to Jesus in a way that's so remarkable that as we look back we can see it's always got to be planned by God. And the works that Jesus did bore witness to him, the miracles, the signs, like that healing of the man who had been lame for 38 years, the feeding of the 5,000, the walking on the water, and for us not just those signs, but the even bigger sign of his resurrection from the dead. If you want to know God's will, there's plenty of evidence that Jesus is speaking with his Father's authority and not his own. Of course, though the human heart is sinful, because the human heart is sinful, people don't really want to know God's will. And so by itself, the evidence is not strong enough, because not because of the problem with the evidence, it's the problem with us. 
And we need the Spirit to give us new life so that we will want to know God's Spirit and we want to accept it. And once the Spirit has worked in our hearts, we can see and accept and, and believe the Gospel and genuinely want to do God's will. And when we look back, we say, yes, of course, that is where the evidence points. We know that Jesus is from God. That Jesus speaks to glorify the Father and not himself. And so in verse 18, Jesus says, The one who speaks in his own authority seeks his own glory. But the one who seeks the glory of him who sent him is true. And in him there is no falsehood. Since Jesus speaks only from the Father, he speaks only for the Father. And when people are impressed by his teaching, he clearly tells them, actually it's from the Father. Contrast to every other teacher, his, his motivation is entirely pure. He seeks the glory of the Father alone. Now, it's a good thing that Jesus is not caught up in their admiration, because it quickly slips away uh, when he goes on to the next topic. Yeah, verse 19, he says, Has not Moses given you the law, yet none of you keeps the law? Now, that's a good way to make friends, isn't it? Right? Then he goes, why do you seek to kill me? Well, we don't, the crowd here is a mixed crowd. Some are on his side, some are not. But he's talking to them as a whole. He's talking to them as a whole. And the ones who aren't prodding, they're thinking, is he paranoid or what? You know? They say in verse 20, you have got a demon. Who is seeking to kill you? So another reaction to Jesus is to think that he's mad. But we know that he's not just imagining this, that there really is a plot that's coming out of the Sabbath controversy in chapter 5. But remember back in chapter 5, when that Sabbath controversy happened, Jesus moved away from defending his actions so that he can talk about his divinity and his claim to be equal with the Father? Well, now he actually goes back and he, he, he defends what he did in healing the invalid on the Sabbath. Verse 21. He says, I did one deed, and you all marvel at it. Moses gave you circumcision, not that it's from Moses, but from the fathers, and you circumcise a man on the Sabbath. If on the Sabbath a man receives circumcision, so the law of Moses may not be broken, are you angry with me because on the Sabbath I made a man's whole body well? Do not judge by appearances, but judge with right judgment. You see what he's saying? It's okay if you to circumcise someone on the Sabbath. A baby is always circumcised on the eighth day, even if the Sabbath. Because the law of the circumcision overrides the law of the Sabbath. Now, if you can do a procedure like that on the Sabbath, when you cut part of the body off, surely you can do something like healing a lame man on the Sabbath, can't you? Makes sense, huh? And so Jesus urges the Jews, judge properly, don't jump to conclusions on this matter and condemn Well, there's all this teaching and ding-dong and all that going on in the temple and people begin to notice that Jesus seems to be able to do this quite freely. And nothing's happening. The authorities haven't come and taken him away or arrested him or shut him down. And they begin to question the authorities' commitment in your opposition against him. Think maybe they're just closing one eye because oh yeah, maybe they're not sure about him. Maybe they think that, that he's real. Verse 25, 26. Some of the people of Jerusalem therefore said, Is this not the man whom they seek to kill? And here he is speaking openly, and they say nothing to him? 
Can it be that the authorities really know that this is the Christ? Ah, maybe he's the Messiah and the authorities think he's the Messiah as well. But then, they think, think, think some more. And they think, mm, maybe he can be actually. Because verse 27, But we know that where this, we know where this man comes from. And when the Christ appears, no one will know where he comes from. They've heard about Mary and Joseph and Nazareth. And, and the rabbis had told them that when the Messiah comes, that, that he would be without obvious origin. So they were confused. And that's another reaction to Jesus, isn't it? It's confusion. But the reason for the confusion is because they did not know him and they didn't know God even though they thought they knew them both. Verse 28. So Jesus proclaimed as he taught in the temple, You know me, and you know where I come from. But I have not come on my own accord. He who sent me is true. And him you do not know. I know him, for I come from him, and he sent me. Once again, he makes these big claims. Yes, he comes from Nazareth, but ultimately he comes from God. And he knows the Father. He knows God. Not just a kind of knowledge of God like, like, like we have, but he, but he really, really knows God from the inside. He is from God, from, from the very being of God himself. And once again, that's offensive to the Jews. And once again, they try to arrest him. Verse 30. So they were seeking to arrest him, but no one laid a hand on him, because his hour had not yet come. Alright, that's another reaction, isn't it? People try to suppress him. Don't let him say these things. They try to arrest him here, but they can't because his hour, the time for him to die and rise again and be exalted, had not yet come. This is the hour one, huh? So, there were some people who thought he couldn't be the Messiah because of origins. On the other hand, there are many who thought that he must be. Uh, because verse 31, yet many of the people believed in him. They said, when the Christ appears, will he do more signs than this man has done? I mean, what more do you want in terms of signs? He's done so many miracles, so powerful ones, so amazing ones. Can't imagine if a Messiah comes, how could he do more than this? So he's got to be the one. That's another reaction to Jesus. Believe in him because of the signs. That's what the signs are for, isn't it? The point people. Jesus. And so the crowd is divided with all these different reactions to Jesus. Maybe some of those reactions are reactions that are here as well. Well, those divisions of the crowd comes and reaches the Pharisees. And in verse 32, we read about this. The Pharisees heard the crowd muttering these things about him. And the chief priests and the Pharisees sent officers to arrest him. Okay, their decision is swift because they already decide what they think about him. They know what they think. So they say, okay, make the arrest. So while the officers were on their way, Jesus is still there, teaching in the temple. Uh, what is he saying? Well, he says, verse 33, I'm going to be with you a little longer, and then I'm going to him who sent me. You will seek me, and you will not find me. Where I am, you cannot come. And then they start arguing again. They say, oh, what do they say? Where does this man intend to go that we will not find him? Does he intend to go to dispersion among the Greeks and, and teach the Greeks? What does he mean by saying, you will seek me and you will not find me, and where I am you cannot come? So, they don't know what he's talking about. Of course, now we know that, huh? On the other side of the cross and resurrection, she's not talking about doing some kind of foreign mission trip. 
He's talking about, well, in six months' time, he was going to be crucified. And he would be rise again and send to the Father. And they would not be able to come. They would not have access to him. Well, the feast was now reaching its climax. And the people were getting excited about it. But not only are we at the climax of the feast, we are also at the climax of the chapter. And a little bit more background about the Feast of the Booths might actually help us in this next little bit. You see, each day during the feast, water was taken by procession, uh, by the high priest. They'd take water from the pool of Siloam, uh, and they would have a big procession and take it back to the temple. And on the seventh day, the priests and the people would process around the altar seven times. They'll be singing psalms of praise. And they pour water, pour that water over the altar. And the water then would stream out from the altar and come out. Now, that ceremony actually wasn't in the Old Testament. Right? It was developed hundred years before Christ. But what it was picturing is very Old Testament. Anybody think of what the picture of water flowing out of the temple, where did that come from? Anybody? Old Testament reading? Ezekiel 47, you remember that? Huh? Water from the temple? This picture is watering the entire land, bringing, bringing goodness and fertility. Um, I don't think you can see that. Uh, come with me to Ezekiel 47. Ezekiel 47. Keep your, keep your bookmarks in John 6. We won't be in Ezekiel 47 very long. Ezekiel 47. And in Ezekiel's time, the, the temple had been destroyed. Um, it was a time of the exile. The temple had been destroyed because of, God, of sin, and God's people had been taken away from the land. They were left with nothing. But in Ezekiel's prophecy, he's, God gives him this picture of a new temple. Uh, because he's, it's not a literal temple. Right? It's using the categories of the past to describe the future. And in this temple, as we read, you've got this water trickling out of the temple. And the further away from the temple it flows, the deeper the water gets. You remember that? And the water brings freshness and trees even to the desert. And when it, when it enters the sea in verse 8, what happens? The sea water becomes fresh. And wherever the river goes in verse 9, living creatures swarm. There's many fish. Everything lives where the river goes. It's, 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 a, it's water that brings life. And verse 12, On the banks on both sides of the river grow all kinds of trees for food. Their leaves will not wither, nor their fruit fail. They will bear fresh fruit every month, because the water for them flows from the sanctuary. Their fruit will be for food, and their leaves for healing. You see the picture God painting in Ezekiel? It's living water, fresh water, coming out of the future temple in Jerusalem. God's presence among his people, creating the new Eden, the beautiful place where Israel had lost their place because of God's wrath. And now, this is a new place, and a new temple, and a new water. The picture of Eden restored in the, in the distant future, with its life coming from the, from the temple of God. You see how that ceremony is, is pictured? That, that is pictured in, that, in the ceremony? 
Oh, oh, look at Zechariah chapter 14 verse 8. Zechariah 14 verse 8. Zechariah 14 was actually read on that day in the temple as part of the festivities. And in verse 8 it says, On that day living waters shall flow out from Jerusalem. Half of them to the eastern sea, half of them to the western sea shall continue in summer as in winter. And the Lord will be king over all the earth. And on that day the Lord will be one in his name one. Again you see the picture. Water flowing. And then Jesus uses this context to make this really outrageous claim in uh, uh, John chapter 7. On the last day of the feast, the great day, the day when all these things are happening, Jesus stood up, chapter 7 verse 37. John chapter 7 verse 37. Back to John now. Jesus stood up and cried out, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, Andrew. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. In the Old Testament prophecy, the source of the water of life was the, was the temple in Jerusalem. But Jesus now says, if you are thirsty, you come to me. And we've already seen in John that Jesus is the true temple, isn't it? The temple and all the ceremonies in the temple will point us to him. And now Jesus is echoing that again. The temple that Ezekiel pictured, the source of the life-giving water that will change the land and bring Eden back us. It's actually here. And Jesus' invitation also echoes another Old Testament passage, Isaiah 55. Isaiah 55, you know, comes after Isaiah 54, right? Which comes after Isaiah 53. And in Isaiah 53, there's this prophecy of Jesus' death for our sins and his rising again. And now we get to Isaiah 54 and 55, which only happened because of Isaiah 53. And Jesus and, and, and it says, Look, Come, everyone who thirsts, come to the waters. He who has no money, come, buy, eat, come, buy wine and milk without money, without price. Why do you spend your money for that which is not bread, and your labor for that which does not satisfy? Listen diligently to me, and eat what is good. Delight yourselves in rich food. Incline your ear, and come to me. Hear that your soul may live. And I will make with you an everlasting covenant, my steadfast, sure love for David. Behold, I made him a witness to the peoples, a leader and a commander for the peoples. God is inviting people because of what he has done to come to himself, to eat and drink real food, that which ultimately satisfied What is that? That he would make an everlasting covenant with them under their leader, the Davidic one, the Davidic king, the leader, commander of his people. And Jesus says, come, come to me, if you are thirsty. Echoing 55 verse 1. Because Jesus is the one who brings in the blessings of the new covenant. Jesus is the one who is the son of David who will lead and rule his people. Jesus is the one who is the source of the water of life, of eternal life. So Jesus says, come, if anyone is thirsty, come. Now, I want you to look very carefully at the exact words Jesus says. Alright, in verse 37 he says, If anyone thirsts, let him come to me and drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture says, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Now, in the original Greek, there is no punctuation. Right? No full stop commas, you know. No big letters, small letters, they're all big letters. Right? So, we need to work out where to put the punctuation. 
and well, there's two places you can put the punctuation here, uh, and that gives a slightly different translation. On the screen is an alternative translation, uh, and the scholars argue about which translation is correct. Okay, we've got the one that's in the Bible, that now in our church Bibles. Uh, here's the other way of translating: If anyone thirsts, let him come to me, and let him drink. Whoever believes in me, as the scripture has said, out of his heart will flow rivers of living water. Do you see the difference next with the punctuation? Okay. Um, the scholars argue back and forth. I actually think that this translation has, has merit. And if it's right, the first two is saying, if you're thirsty, come to Jesus. And if you believe in Jesus, then you can drink from him. Because, as the scripture says, out of his heart flow rivers of living water. And if this translation is right, then it's Jesus' heart that is the source of living water, isn't it? And I think that that, that that connects with our Old Testament passages, like Ezekiel 47, read together with the evidence that Jesus is a true temple, that out of him comes the living water, from the inside of him. That's why he talks about the scriptures saying that kind of thing. But what is this living water? Well, verse 39. Now he said this about the Spirit, whom those who believed in him were to receive. For as yet the Spirit had not been given, because Jesus was not glorified. Jesus is the one who gives the Spirit. He is the fountain of living water. And the Spirit is the one who gives life, the new life, the life of above, the one who causes people to be born again. The Spirit mediates the presence of Christ and gives us intimacy with Him and therefore with the Father. The Spirit sustains us and enables us to, to bear fruit for God, that the Spirit is God. And we know the Spirit was poured out at Pentecost. The Spirit has come, as we say just now, because Jesus has been glorified. He has died and risen again and ascended to the right hand of the Father. And we have the Spirit now. Because from Jesus has flowed the living river. But, we still live in a now and not yet, don't we? And there is more to come. We live now. The God promise is fulfilled now. And yet we are still looking forward to the ultimate fulfillment in the future. And later on in the book of Revelation, the same John who was given this who is recording these words of Jesus is given a vision of the new creation. And some of this imagery is picked up there. Have a look on the screen at Revelation 22, verse 1 and 2. It says, Then the angel saw... Now, this is, this is talking about the new creation. This is at the end. Then the angel showed me the river of the water of life, bright as crystal, flowing from the throne of God and of the Lamb, through the middle of the street of the city, also, on either side of the river, the tree of life with its twelve kind of fruit, yielding its fruit each month. And the leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. Does that sound familiar? Yeah. Ezekiel's river again, isn't it? And once again we see that that, well, we see that this living, this water is flowing from the throne of God. And of the land is, is coming from, from God himself. And in, And the 
the Spirit who proceeds from the Father and the Son. Uh, we know now the Spirit has come, has come to us. But on that day, in the new creation, His coming to us is, is complete. So caught up in the, the life and life of the Trinity that, 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 we, that, that, that we come into all that we are made for. Uh, knowing the ultimate satisfaction of God Himself. Uh, being caught up into that, that whole thing. The Father, Son, and, and the Spirit. The Spirit flowing from the throne of God in the land. And we who are thirsty drink of Him Well, from the high point of Jesus' words, we come back down to earth and we see the reaction that He's getting. And once again, it's a mixed reaction. Some people are supportive, though they haven't really understood everything about who he is, and some people want to kill him. Verse 40, when they heard these words, some of the people said, this is really the prophet. I remember the prophet like Moses, Moses prophet promised that a prophet like him would come and people must listen to him. Well, that's true, he is, well, that's not sufficient, but he's not got that far. Others said, this is the Christ. It is the Messiah, God's promised king, the descendant of David, who will rule God's people forever. But has not, but the others said, eh, is the Christ to come from Galilee? Has not the scripture said that Christ comes from the offspring of David and comes from Bethlehem, the, the village where David was? Well, right? Just kind of like assume that Jesus was born in Galilee because he grew up there. Uh, didn't have all the facts, but just wrote him off. And so between those who wanted him dead and those who thought he was the prophet or the Messiah, and, well, let's just kind of agree like what to do with him. And so verse 43, 44, there was a division among the people over him. Some wanted to arrest him, but no one laid hands on him. And Jesus causes division, doesn't he? Because of all the different reactions you get to Jesus, then you have division because of Jesus. That's, that's what happens. And we know that in our lives, in our families, and our friends. That's what happens. Well, verse 45, the officers who had come to, to, to arrest him go back to the Pharisees empty-handed. The officers came to the chief priests and Pharisees who said to them, why didn't you bring him back? And the officers answered, no one has ever spoken like this man. Well, I think they'll be in trouble with these guys, won't they? Huh? You sure you want to arrest him? I mean, we're pretty impressed. Well, actually, this means the Pharisees got a chance to reconsider, didn't they? Here's a chance, a second chance for them. What do they do? Verse 47, they say, Have you also been deceived? Have any of the authorities of the Pharisees believed in him? For this crowd that doesn't know the law is accursed. See, they think that by definition they are right. They don't go back to the scriptures, and look around at each other and go, yep, yep, we all agree, we must be right. And they miss the chance to reconsider their actions. And they confirm their own guilt in rejecting Jesus. But almost immediately, God in his patience gives them another chance because they discover they're not unanimous. At least one of their numbers does sound a caution. Verse 15. 
Nicodemus, who had gone to him, Jesus, before, and who was one of them, said to them, Does our Lord judge a man without first giving him a hearing and learning what he does? He's not telling them they have to believe in Jesus. He's just saying, give him a fair hearing. Find out first before you condemn him. What do they do? They're disparaging. 52. Does, they report, are you from Galilee too? Uh, Galilee is like a really bad place. Right? You from there as well? Search and you'll see no prophet ever comes from Galilee. And so they let their prejudice blind them to the truth. Don't stop to check the facts. They reject Jesus and continue to seek his death. I wonder if there's anybody here who's a little bit like that. You know, there are many different reactions to Jesus as we've seen, but maybe you're a little bit like this. You've heard of Jesus, and have heard lots of things about Jesus, but you don't want to accept him as your king. Other people tell you all these things, but you don't want to believe, and you haven't really checked it out properly. Now, my friends, take this as your wake-up call. Here's your chance to reconsider. The Pharisees had two chances to reconsider and they blew it both times. Don't do that. Be fair. Go back to the scriptures. Examine the evidence. Or at least do Christianity explore. We've got a course for you. Alright? Go and have a look. Pray that God by His Spirit will give you a will that seeks to know God's will. And therefore know if Jesus is from the Father or not. Start the day. Don't be like the Pharisees in confirming your own guilt. Finally, let me take us back to the invitation of Jesus. Jesus said, If anyone is thirsty, let him come to me. Are you thirsty? you recognize that life now is not what it's meant to be? you realize that you are a sinner, alienated from God by your wrong behavior? You're like the people of Israel, out, away from God's place? you long to be forgiven and restored to a right relationship with God? You want to be in the new creation at the end? Where sin and all its effects are gone. Where we can have perfect relationship with God once again. Where there is no more death or mourning or crying or pain. But where God is our God and we are his people. Who will know him and love him and enjoy him and worship him together for all eternity. Like, like in the Garden of Eden, only better. If that is what you thirst for and hear the words of Jesus. If anyone thirsts, let him come to me. And let him drink whoever believes in me. Jesus died to take the punishment for our sins. So if you're thirsty, you've heard his invitation. Come, believe, Let's pray.
Heavenly Father, we thank you for the Lord Jesus who offers us the true water of life, who gives us his spirit, who enables us to have communion with him and with you. And we thank you that he has died and risen again, that we might be forgiven and be able to participate in that great fellowship. Now, and more fully at the end. Our Heavenly Father, we pray that that would be the thing that we always thirst for. You in your presence, your Son in your Spirit. May that be what we always long for, to know you better and love you more. And help us to always come to Jesus. Because we know that in Him is the fount of life. And it's through Him that we drink of your Spirit. Now and forever. And it's because of Him that we will live in your presence. And enjoy a relationship with you. Heavenly Father, we, we pray that uh, you would keep us mindful of that and help us always to look to Jesus, come to him, believe in him, and drink of him. Help us, we pray, as we face all the different reactions to Jesus, as we seek to make him known. Help us not to be scared off by them, but to know that that's always been the way things are. And help us to lovingly and faithfully keep on pointing people to Him and keep on extending the offer that He has made in the passage we've read today. So we pray for those of us here who have not yet come to Jesus. We pray that you would have mercy upon them, that your spirit would work in their hearts, that they might have the will to know whether Jesus is truly from you or not. They might have the will to do your will, and by that be able to see them that Jesus truly is yours, and that all he does is what you have given him to do. So I pray that they would not reject him, that they would take their time now to, to reconsider and to put their trust in him, and so enjoy that gift of eternal life forever. Pray, Heavenly Father, that, uh, that you would be doing this work among us, and that you would help us. Help us to think about Jesus, not from an earthly point of view, 
but from your point of view. Help us to think about ministry not from an earthly point of view, but from your point of view. Help us to be followers of Jesus, we pray. In his name. Amen.